Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. This is The Big Interview and I'm Graham Hunter. I'm happy to have you with me. Today, my guest is Michael Bridges. We decided to approach Michael because he was one of those that, to the three of us, um, Martin, Neil and I, felt emblematic of the last time that Leeds were dramatic. I didn't know that was going to rhyme before I started out in a sentence, but hey, (laughs) that's the adventure of life, isn't it? What? Beyond that, though, the more we researched, the more we found out that Michael was quite the character, um, definitely bright, certainly articulate, opinionated. And one of the things that really stood out to us was that despite the fact that we were all, him especially, cruelly robbed of him at his most explosive because of that dreadful injury he suffered for Leeds at Pajutas, he nonetheless had a, a huge career in football and remained totally plugged in, enchufed, as we say in Spanish, to the Leeds scene. Anyway, that was enough to convince us we should ask him to join us. The alacrity with which he said yes was also encouraging. So, in this first part of the interview, you'll hear us talking about why Chris Waddle left a young and bemulleted Michael. I don't know if bemulleted Michael in tears for two weeks is a good way to say it. He was Michael. He had a mullet haircut and he cried for two weeks. You, you want to know why? I haven't put you off. Okay, listen on. We'll also tell you how his remarkable father, somebody who I wish I'd known well, Joe, a, a lifelong Newcastle fan, reacted to his son signing for Sunderland. However, Leeds fans, as I promised, 
you know you got the best of Michael. And he's now back at that club as an ambassador. So his story, the goals, the laughter, the drama, the footballing tragedy, genuinely tragedy, it's all here. More of all that soon. For the moment, may I introduce part one of the fascinating and funny Michael Bridges. It's a big interview, um, and this time, it's a, it's a double first. It's something I never achieved in my educational career. We're, we're beaming straight to Australia, across the internet, and um, it's our first Leeds player for a long time. Played for many, many other clubs, but we're focusing on Mr. Michael Bridges. Um, welcome, good eye, uh, etc., uh, further, further cliches of international language. <laughs> well, good eye, and thank you very much for for having me on. Uh, really looking forward to Graham. It's been, um, like you say, when I got the the message to take part and in, in be interviewed, I, I couldn't jump at the chance quick enough, especially with what's going on at Leeds United, bouncing back into the Premier League. It's it's been an incredible um, journey. Having been a player there and seeing what they've been through and seeing the highs and the lows, but to see them bounce back and be involved with the club again as an ambassador, it's been absolutely brilliant. So um, looking forward to what you've got to say. I tell you what, Michael, I mean, I'm a, as well as looking curious, I'm a very curious person. Were you a bit of a mixed up kid? Rumour has it. Rumour, OK, so I might be wrong. Mullet. Spurs supporting Newcastle-born man who ends up Mackham, and the kids used to call around and ask your dad to come out and play. Now, that's a big first question. Is all of it true? Now, you've done your research. I don't know who you spoke to, but every word is true, and you're right. I'm very, very mixed up. And it, it goes back, you know, I used to go up to St. James's Park with my dad. He was black and white daft, and I used to go up there at St. James's Park. I'll never forget sitting there cup of bovril and a, a pie that was that was my my night my dad would have his he would have his beer for those who haven't been there describe the how you get to from the center of newcastle up to st james's park for those who haven't had the privilege of doing that sort of pilgrimage particularly seeing as you're a wee man with your dad what's stuck in your head about the getting there and what it was like well it's the whole build up it's, it wasn't actually the football game itself it was the the build up you know getting from the house in whitley bay to the train station Getting on the train with your, with my father and a few of his friends and his mates on the way up to the game, all talking about the match and what it was going to entail. And then you get the train up to St. James's Park, you go up the escalators to the top, and as you come out of the, the metro station, you can just see St. James's Park up on top of the hill, and you just do that climb and the walk up, and the, you hear the chants starting. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's what I experienced at St. James's Park as a young kid. And I think that's everybody's memories on a match day, that they will have their own story about what it is, and you'd get the goosebumps. And I just used to look forward to getting in there to see my, my heroes. And one of them was Chrissy Waddle. And absolutely adored that man. I loved the way he entertained and he played the game. And yes, I did have a mullet. I grew my bloody hair at the back like his hair. <laughs> I tried to even have a little limp. Waddle had a bit of a stagger and a, a limp when he walked or he ran. And like a drop shoulder. I even tried to imitate what he was about. Now, now, bearing in mind, I'm eight years of age and shirts weren't ready available then. You could get them from your area. So what had happened anyway, long story short, Chrissy Waddle left. He went to Tottenham Hotspur. 
I think I cried my eyes out for about two weeks. And I'm not kidding. I said, my dad, I'm not going back. I don't want to go to the game. And he said, what about the Bovril? That'll get you there. I said, not even the Bovril will get us there. <laughs> so he was he worked in the Met Police many years ago in London. And he had some contacts down there. He was a police officer in Newcastle when he moved up. And the next thing you know, a Tottenham shirt was delivered. And he came into the room one day and he said, there you go. You can support Chris Waddle in Tottenham Hotspur. And the rest, wow. the rest is history. So he just to to buck you up, he made sure he got a Spurs shirt from down there, and he gave you his blessing to go to the wrong side, to, to Spurs down south. I wouldn't say the wrong side. You know, we've we we win trophies every year. <laughs> Not. <laughs> Well, before we flip back again, you just said we. Well, you well, you know, I'm still a Spurs fan. That that fascinates me. I, I genuinely because one of the things that both for professional footballers and and for a lot of journalists, when you see the the, the difficult side of the profession, you can. You, I haven't lost my love for Aberdeen. It, it just like it courses through me. I, I still sell my soul to eleven people who are there for wages only every week. There's and I'm gone and I'm gone for life. But when you said we, given all that you've experienced and and the fact that Spurs is a rough ride, I liked hearing that. Well, I'll tell you what, Graham, you won't like hearing my story later on when I could have signed for Tottenham Hotspur then. And Graham, Alan Sugar shattered my childhood dreams. So that's that's a good one we'll, we'll get into a bit later on. Listen, the last time that we sat, we sat an interview guest, which is that had so many fantastic strips, we were sitting... In Chris Waddle's loft. When we were up there, he had all his music. He had little statues of Laurel and Hardy, and he had he had strips as well. So when you got that strip from your dad, a Spurs strip, was was that when this love of of like that strips mean something that they're aesthetically important to you began? I think it was even before that. I um, from the age of five or six, it was a, a novelty. You know, I wasn't from a, an effluent family. We were from Whitley Bay. You know, mum mum was a nurse, dad was a police officer, trying to, you know, always only child trying to support us as best they could. And I, I couldn't play ice hockey. I loved ice hockey, but I couldn't afford the the equipment that came with it. So I took up street hockey because it was obviously there was a, just a pair of rollerblades and a stick. You didn't need all the padding and things. Um, but the the football strip every Christmas I always wanted or asked for off Santa Claus was a, a football jersey, and it would go from you know the the Liverpool the candy one that was a it was the silver one that used to have the the stripes at one end. John Barnes was famous for wearing that one. I love my Spurs shirts, um, and I think one year I actually got a I got a beautiful French jersey. So don't ask where where the hell my old man got it. It was probably a Fugazi for all all right reasons, you know. Platini was spelt wrong on the back of it, but it was um, just great, just great, great memories. And I, every year, me and the lads on Christmas Day in my street would run to the cul-de-sac on Christmas Day after we'd had breakfast and opened the presents, and we're all just checking each other's football jerseys out to see who wanted to be what player. So just great memories, and that's where the love affair started with jerseys. And what what surprised me later on in life in football. Um, I, I collect jerseys. I've got, um, you know, Frank de Boer's Barcelona jersey, um, Costa Curta's AC Milan jersey, Aldair's Roma. And I've just collected them as many times as I can over the years when I swap shirts. And, you know, it was interesting to see not many of the lads did that, which I was very surprised at. Now, I've got memories from their matches and things, and I think some of the lads probably regret it back then when they never used to swap jerseys. I, I, I look around now and, and I see that it, it becomes a thing 
um, in big, big matches. Not only should we swap, but who's first? Uh, who's asked me first? Where should we do it? There's a big controversy now about like never swap on the pitch, only inside. A lot of players keep a second strip so that they keep their own and swap the spare strip. There's a big industry in that. I've been in Chappie Ferrer's house and he's got a wardrobe full of them that he, he takes out on rollers and shows you. And they're, for some footballers, the game's so brutal that peripheral details don't matter. And for others... It's a living, breathing memory of every effort you've put in, every time you've come up against a top opponent. And and, and clearly, with the loving detail you've put into those behind you, it, as well as just being strips, they mean something to you from your life. Oh, that was shadow of a doubt. The, the best one, the good story about the AC Milan jersey, it was the night when we knocked AC Milan out at home. Lee Boyer scored a late goal. Uh, it went through Dida's hands. So I'm playing up against Maldini and Costa Curta. And I'm looking at the scoreboard, and Costa Kurt has marked me all game, and because that that's how it panned out. So I thought I don't really fancy Costa Kurt a shirt. So the last few minutes, I've gone and stood next to Maldini because I know the referee's going to blow the whistle, and I want Maldini's shirt. So as soon as I turned, the referee's blown his whistle. I've gone, Maldini, you know, swap shirt, swap shirt. And he said, Oh, sorry, um, cool. And I thought, Oh, he's done us again, you know. Harry's done us. So I saw Shevchenko and I ran ran up to shake hands with the players and I went to Shevchenko, swap shirt, and he went, no, no, sorry, you're a rather be. I was. So lo and behold, I've gone back, Costa Curtis shirts up for grabs. So I'll never forget, I'd never seen, AC Milan actually did a, a lap around Ellen Road to clap our fans as well, which I hadn't seen before. And I wish I'd never seen it because as we were coming off a young team in Leeds, we were all show, showing each other the jerseys that we had. Harry's got Maldini's and we're clapping our fans and MacPhail had had another good one as well. I can't think who he has. And um, I just turned around to say to the lads, oh, I've got Costa Curtis. And at that moment, I witnessed Costa Curtis. I opened my shirt up and looked at the back of it and he went, oh, stuff that. And he threw it in the Leeds end. And I, I'll never forget, I was absolutely mortified mortified and the the best thing about it i found it via twitter last year when i told that i was having a chat on the story um at a function that i was doing in the uk and the guy said i know the person that grabbed your jersey and he got in touch with me on twitter so it was absolutely hilarious without telling you that this is stone cold fact can i give you an alternative version of that you you know that costa corta's nickname is billy he's just called universally he's called billy costa corta and that's because of his absolute obsession with English football. So, as much as you were obsessed with Chrissy Wardle or whatever, Costa Curta grew up thinking that English football, how they defend, the traditions of English football were just like this. And he would always go on about it. So, his nickname, just universally, is Billy Costa Curta. I'm telling you that rather than him turning around and going... Bridges, who cares, who's he? I think what he's just done is paid testimony to what he thinks is British fan culture give to the noisy Leeds fans one of their own jerseys. So unless you've got a postcard from him saying, don't ever pop shorts with me again, I never want to see your name, then I'm telling you, he was he was actually honouring you with what he did. I'm willing to bet on that, Michael. I'm taking that. That makes me feel a hell of a lot better. I can't go to uh, Leeds before we make one more comparison because when we were in that last um, loft with the shirts that were comparable to that, you you talked about Chrissy's little shoulder shuffle and his limp and whatever. Chris told us that he he played to, I don't know, nearly 50 or whatever in amateur football and he would play with teams that were trying to do him all the time in the Sheffield Leagues 
And one day he was playing against a kid who was trying his best to get close to him and the centre half was absolutely larriking the, the young full back who wasn't getting near him. And Chris, you know, did him, did him time and time and time again because he's competitive. But by the end of the match, said to the youngster, never mind that, I did that to Maldini at Wembley. And uh, that was that was Chris's message that if I can do it to Maldini, I can do it to anybody. I suppose that attitude, those skills, what he did to Maldini against uh, against Italy at Wembley, is why a young footballer would fall in love with him because he he just be, he seemed to be able to do impossible things with his frame. That the never mind the the, the tricks, the, the balance. He just he just looks so unorthodox, and it, it looked. He didn't look like when he was on the ball he, he could do anything. And then when he dropped that shoulder and he went, it was just excitement. You never knew. And that, that's what got me. I, I just love entertainers. And that, that's probably one of the things that I admired from people like him and Peter Beardsley that I watched up at St. James's Park. It was the guys that captured my imagination. I went, wow, what did they just do? And I tried to take that into my footballing career. And, you know, sometimes it pays dividends when you're doing it in the final third. But when you're doing it in your own penalty area and you've got Peter Reid calling you everything under the sun, ready to rip your head off because you've tried to do a cruyff in your own box. I learned, the, I learned the hard way, but I learned very quickly. You don't do that in your own area. Peter's a good teacher. Before we, before we go to Ellen Road, I have to ask because, you know, your dad has figured so largely in the reason that, you know, you're here after a good career because I think it was a decent footballer too. How long did it take to make the piece once you, you got signed for, for for them? Well, I, I'll tell you this story. It was, I got in by Fluka Crook. It's, it, it was it was third time lucky for myself. I got released at Newcastle School of Excellence when I was 13 and it really upset us. John Carver and the Newcastle youth team had said, listen, we're, we're, you, you know, we don't think you're good enough. You need to, to move on and get back to school and have another crack later at a later date. That really hurt us, but it gave us the incentive. My father said, you know, you've got to use this and, and try and prove that man wrong or the, the club wrong and, you know, don't let it upset you and put it, put you off. So I had another, another go at Middlesbrough um, for a trial in Middlesbrough when they were training... Um, up in Newcastle, they used to have a, a training centre up there twice a week and got got an opportunity there but never really got to play a game and again it was this the same story I'd been released. So I, I was devastated and I was one of the oldest, uh, sorry, one of the youngest at school in my year and it was actually my 5th of August birthday that saved my footballing career and being in the right time at the right, the right place at the right time. So a scout called Jack Hickson who spotted Alan Shearer actually came along to watch our school game. So I, I stayed on at Sixth Form College to become a sports teacher. I needed to get the wanted to do that. We were studying to be a sports teacher. We had a cracking football team at Monkseaton High School. So the lads all made a pact to stay together to win the All England Cup for the schools. When a lot of lads had gone off to go to YTS and scholarships from other clubs, we thought we've got a real chance here this year. So anyway, lo and behold, they came to watch another striker of mine, Simon Foster, who was a northeast goal scoring machine. He was injured. The scout was there to watch him. I played up front and I scored five goals in the game. And the scout, Jack Hickson, was stood next to my dad and actually asked, Who's who's the number ten? And my dad said, Oh, that's a kid called Bridges. He didn't tell him he was it was his son. He just said Bridges, and he said, "All oh, right." He said, "I'm here to watch. I'm here to watch Simon Foster." So my dad, being smart as a dart, said, "Oh, he's shite." He said, "Bridges is much better than him." So, long. My dad helped us get a, 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 an opportunity to be scouted over there, but he never asked the scout where he was from, and it backfired on my dad because 
Jack was scouting for Sunderland. So when I answered the phone at the house, and it was Jack, and he said, Michael, we'd like to offer you an opportunity to come and sign, uh, sorry, come and train as a, a, a two-week work experience. I'm jumping at the chance. I said, where, where have I got to go? He said, well, your dad just needs to drive you through the time tunnel under the river and through to Sunderland. And I just went, oh, my God, I've got to, I've got to go in the kitchen and tell me dad now. So the funniest thing ever, I'll never forget walking into that kitchen. My mum and dad are really, you know, waiting in anticipation to see where it's going to be. And I actually sneezed and muttered, Sunderland. Dad said, I'm going to have to break your legs. I can't allow this to happen. <laughs> so th- there you go. It was it was incredible, you know. And I didn't think I would have any issues. Um, I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't give us any issues. He was absolutely delighted. But it was that moment of shock horror, you know, to think that he's... He's got to tell all his mates that I'm going on trial to Sunderland, which he's, he wouldn't even let one of my mates over the door who wore a Sunderland shirt who lived around the corner, my best mate, Gary Harden. He used to make him stand at the threshold and wouldn't let him come in. So it was quite ironic. But bless him, four years ago, he passed away. So he's, um, he's a proud man. He's a proud man. I, I lost, I lost me mentor, Graham. I lost him. Mate, this guy used to drive me up to Berwick two hours when I got a trial there with Warren Hawke. He'd drive me two hours up to Berwick to watch me get beat 15-0 by Celtic and Rangers, to drive all the way back to Whitley Bay, and it took him six drives, and he said, I'm never taking you back there ever again, son. Enough is enough. (laughs) What, What a man. Hats off. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview, and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten and David Goldblatt. Now, a friend of mine, Lawrence Donegan, on his classic golf book, four iron in the soul you know you just write a book and it's just some sort of alchemy that you you don't understand what's happening that's a good word and lo and behold at the end of it it's like something's it comes together and something's happened that you're not even aware it was happening at the time i think nick hornley talked about this about fever pitch you just wrote a book not that fever uh, got that's anywhere near as good as fever pitch but you know there's just some sort of alchemy mysterious thing that happens in the process of writing a book and the book is greater then for some reason it's actually better and bigger and more appealing than you actually intended. And lo and behold, as you say, 20 years later we're still talking about it and people will still talk about it. People absolutely love it in a way. And those kind of books that hit, just hit some kind of chord that you, you know, some kind of bullseye that you weren't aiming for, but somehow it hit that bullseye and, and, and that's, why, that's why they'll last. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And, and I'm jumping the Sunderland bit. It, it, maybe we come back to Sunderland, but you do so well there in a kind of rotating um, four-man front line, which is Dickio and you, and it's Big Nile Quinn and Kev Phillips, also a guest on this on this podcast, a fantastic guest, interesting man, clever, clever striker. Um, but you do so well, but you're also so eager to be a starter in the Premier League. It's still in all its leads. I understand the attraction of going there, but can you go back in your mind and just sum up those that first week or two as you learn the rituals, as people try to din into you what is Leeds and, and what are the things that you begin to notice about being a Leeds player in that first couple of weeks? The, well, the first thing I had to get into my mentality, uh, the fact that I, I had to feel that I belonged there, because I couldn't believe that I was going to a Premier League club that I'd been watching the season before with the quality that they, they had at their disposal because I was I was with Sunderland youth team, I was with the reserves. I could never beat, when we were at Sunderland, we never beat that Leeds United youth team that had Woodgate, Ian Hart, MacPhail, Smith, Kuehl, you know, Robinson, the goalkeeper. It was incredible to think that I was going there and they had put that much money and belief into me because when I got there, I didn't believe I was good enough to be there. That was the thing I had to try and get mentally strong. And what I did realise early on is that I wasn't fit enough to be in this team because I'd been shying away from Sunderland's pre-season. I'd missed out. And Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank had just signed for Atletico Madrid the day before. And O'Leary came up, he said, you better learn to swim quickly and you better get fit quickly. It's going to be a tough pre-season for you. If you're up for the challenge, um, we're going to go a long way. And it was, I was never going to batter an eyelid. Everything they threw at me with a guy called Ed Baranowski, who was the fitness coach. It was two, three sessions a day I was doing the extras because I wanted to get to the level of these players, basically. Uh, and it was a, a massive reality check. I've got to be honest with you. There was a lot of things that the training ground facilities were superb. Um, the, the players that I played with, what, what, I, what I seem to do is develop so quickly playing against play, people like Woodgate and Radebe because I'm not saying no disrespect to when I was training with Sunderland. These guys were on a different level. In my game, I had to lift my game all around. I had to lift my beliefs. Uh, and it's... You know, it was all down to the players that were around me that my game came on so quickly and advanced, and the the work and effort that I had to put in to get there as well. That's what I look I look back on. I'm stunned. It's a brilliant answer because you know one of the things that Neil and and uh, Martin and I all thought is that we remember early games and an early interview where not only do you come across as very articulate, very very friendly, I'd say charming for a for a boy that age. 
you gave, in public at least, no indication whatsoever that there could have been any doubts in your mind. And, and you know, even at an amateur level, or the, the, listen, the professional game listens to this podcast too, but if you play against a set of lads who always beat you, I, I can understand that not sh- not being sure if you're going to fit in isn't just personal doubt. You know that you're playing with guys who, who've turned you over. But that's quite an interesting little psychological flip. The, the physical effort of, of working hard under Ed three times a day costs... But you can give that more easily than working on the do I belong thing. That's a that's a big jump. Graham, you know what the, the final decider was? I, I ended up moving into a house next door to Harry Keel. We became very, very close mates on and off the field. I think it, you, that showed in that first season with all the goals I scored. Harry played a part and the, the goals that he scored, I'd played a part. We just we just connected so well on and off the field. And he was like the brother that I, I'd never had. And the, the other side of that was the Derby game. First game, Derby at home. It's nil-nil. I've had a shocker. It, it plays mind games on you. The, the press, there was no good press write-ups. But the following, I felt so much more relaxed the following game down at Southampton. And the ball came, it was on the edge of the box. And I just looped one in to the top right-hand corner from a free kick, which I shouldn't have been anywhere near. Anyway, it just fell to me and I managed to pull off some, some you know, little lob over the goalkeeper. And- it was a Letizia goal because the way in which you take it, there's no space and your control flips it up and the defender's on you and you still loop it up and into the far corner. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous goal. And it was that moment when I realised David Batty came and he jumped on top of me and he went, you've arrived, young man, now back yourself. And that... That for me, getting a senior player of his, his, when I used to watch him playing for England and, and what he was all about, but he was the unsung hero. That was huge for me. And then I went on to get a hat trick that game, and I just felt the shackles come off. And it was it was that moment when I, I felt like I, I actually belonged there, and, I, and that's when my mindset completely changed after all the hard work had paid off. Pick out then a couple of characters to to, to try and what we hope to do in this series genuinely is is tell stories about football culture and football people. And and we see the games, we get interviews. But, for example, if you were to pick out one or two in that setup, not necessarily a team, I would have instantly asked you about the chief, maybe about Lucas Redebi, who seemed to me to be, irrespective of what gone on in his life, he, he was kind of a spiritual leader for just about everybody because the fans worshipped him. O'Leary, who's not short of a little bit of self-regard, and he's quite a... You know, he's quite a confident fella, to, to use a euphemism. He just spoke about him with reverence. I wonder what it was like... T- tell us about why it was difficult to train against him. Tell us what it was like to be in a dressing room and work with him. Uh, what, what Lucas was, he, he it was very tough because he was good friends with David O'Leary. They were teammates and roommates. So the moment when Lucas was given the armband, before I'd even got there... I think O'Leary had said to Lucas, you're going to be, I'm going to want you to be captain chief, you're getting the armband, but you don't call me, he used to call him um, Paddy. Lucas used to call O'Leary Paddy, you see. But he said, you don't call me Paddy anymore, he said, now it's Gaffer. And Lucas found that very, very hard. So that was their, you know, their relationship. You've got to distance yourself from that. But Lucas Lucas wore the armband. And like I say, when I got there, he, he embraced me. He said, welcome to the club. If there's anything you need, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to be the, you know, the, the mentor for you. And it was tough because culturally he's come from a, a different culture altogether. And, you know, we had a we had a very, very, what I found out early doors is that you've got people like Gary Kelly that are the ones that are the entertainers that organise the get-togethers. He was a catalyst for that. 
And Lucas never batted an eyelid to get himself involved in that culture, but there was rules and regulations, but it was one in, all in. We never had clicks, and that's one thing that I, I remember about Lucas. Now, what he did in training, I've played against a lot of defenders that take it easy in training. Uh, you know, they're waiting for the match day, waiting Saturday comes. I'll tell you what Lucas never did. He played, he trained the way he played. And that's one thing I, I took a massive... Um, how do you say it? I took a big leaf out of his book to say, you know, he's focused every single day. He gets himself prepared for training and he doesn't switch off until that training session's over. Yes, he was a character. He was bubbly. He played with a smile on his face, which I love. But because he played the game so hard in training, he, I had to up my game as well. So he played a massive part for me. My take on it, and, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is that you were a player... Um, who was never shy of the ball being pinged into him because your touch was good, but you always wanted to. I, I I felt like you used space really well, found space really well, because you never really wanted to go onto your left. So when you're training against Radebi, who I think was quite good about, he was quick over short bursts and physical without being a brute, without being like Al Dyer, he would show you the way he wanted you to go, and if you gave him an inch, he would be through you. How did you learn what? Playing against him, how did you alter in those first few months? Well, I used to like to get the ball pinned into my feet and roll defenders, but I soon learned, I learned very quickly that when you do that, Lucas Radebe, you're going to get studs down the back of your calves and Achilles tendons. And I've still got his, I've still got his tattoo, or as I call it, his signature on the back of my calf when he, he would go through you in training. So the reason I get space so well, Graham, is because I didn't want to get kicked off Lucas and I used to have to go drifting into other areas. That's that's it. So you know, it, it was different. There was some players you could spin and turn. You couldn't spin Lucas. He was he was he would just kick you. He would make the he was he was a nightmare to play against. And the other the other thing that I learned from being there, I, um, I was a big fan of Dennis Bergkamp as well. I used to love watching Dennis and the way he could find space. And um, the 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 interpretation that I use now, you might laugh at this, but when I'm coaching youngsters and that, I say. Or, or, or players, I say, you know, if you're a real estate agent, you want to buy the biggest plot of land you can. You've got to find the biggest bit of green grass. And I said, so if you can find yourself in that area with nobody else in there, people, you're, you're going to find the ball. Do not let yourself get marked. And that was a big thing I learned from not wanting to get kicked from Lucas, but also watching the way Dennis played the game because he was he was a master. What was your vision of space in that case? Did you Did you just drift into areas instinctively because it was innate or... Did you then have to think, I, I, I'm going to study all my opponents and work out what they like to do and judge where to go based on that? If I was playing, if we were playing as a two, it would normally be Harry on the left-hand side, so you'd obviously get the left side stop or whatever. But if I was playing up front on my own and Harry was in behind as a ten, I would try and work, you know, you'd, you'd have an idea of who you thought you would get more joy out of as a player. And you'd go up and, and play against them more often than not. Um, and the other thing I used to do, I'd look for the numerical advantage. If if I look around and scanned around, I realise that the you know the ball's over one side of the field, and there's enough bodies over there. There's I've got a lot more opportunity to get myself in one on one situations. Or if Harry was drifting out further to the left, we could get a two v one. So I, I was I was a, a small player, and I came, that came from Eddie Gray. He he, you know Peter Reed. Peter Reed turned me into a man. 
um, and he'd give us an opportunity. I was a young, skinny kid. He turned, he, you know, what he drilled into me was he got the boyhood out of me and he made us a tough player because I was, you know, sometimes you could brush me off the ball. When I got to Leeds, the education from Eddie Gray that I got in an attacking sense was um, was phenomenal. As a Scot, I, I want to be selfish here, go off the menu and say please continue about Eddie because when I was growing up, and I'm, I'm born in 63, so by the time Eddie was... I was going to say dominating English football, but certainly one of the leading. He was the next best thing to George Best in my eyes, before probably before you were born. But the the again like Chris Waddle, his Eddie's wily body and he's a tough, good humoured man. But his the way he could show you one way go the next and do it three times in the space of two seconds until the defender's head was turned on backwards. The knowledge that he could show and teach as well is really good news to me. Oh, it was spot on. And you just think of the education lesson that Harry Kuehl had. Yes, Harry was an amazing player. He played off the cuff. He could he could open doors. He could win games single-handedly. But I'll tell you what, when he, when he got a mentor, somebody like Eddie Gray, who played in that position... And he would tell Harry, you know, because Harry didn't like defending, but he, when he got the ball, you were kind of like, whoa, hang on a minute, what's going on? And Ed, Eddie used to work with um, Harry a hell of a lot. And I think um, he can take a lot of credit for the way he, he manufactured and, and developed Harry as a player because, uh, you know, there's similarities from when I've seen clips of Eddie Gray in, in Harry Q when he runs with the ball. And the brother that you never had, being a sing, single kid, is, is Harry Q, in your view, a little bit underestimated. I, I, during the lockdown time, I, I spoke at length to Rafa Benitez. We did a big Zoom, and he's very defensive about having started Harry Kuehl in Istanbul. And because of the tactical choices, because of the way the midfield was, where Gerard started the game, Haman only came on afterwards, Harry felt like a little bit of a risk, and, and he's very defensive. About it. And the thing he always says is Harry was a match winner. And I put him on there because if had Harry been in full form, he could. And I think that if if Rafa is a little bit defensive about that choice, because it wasn't because of Harry Kuehl that they went three 0 down to Milan. I feel generally that either because of a relationship with the media, or maybe because of the way that the Leeds bubble burst, my contention is Kuehl was a better footballer, a more impactful member of the Premier League than people have subsequently given him credit for. Oh, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, he was, you know, when you look at his highlights reel, what he did in the Premier League with Leeds United and, you know, at Liverpool as well, before he had his, his injuries and his setbacks, he, he's up there. He was, there's things he he did that you would just cease to, it would just cease to amaze you in training. So I think the credit, he lost obviously a lot of respect with the Leeds public when he left. Um, sadly, when he went to Liverpool, but also signing for Galatasaray, but that kind of kickstarted Harry's career once again because he had success out there. But it never really went down well with the Leeds fans due to you know Kevin and Chris um, passing away in Istanbul. Um, in that sense, but like you say, I think Harry was was protected by his agent Bernie Mandich at the time, and it made him you had to get inside Harry's Harry's bubble and his, his circle of trust. To understand how much of a nice guy he he is, and uh, and how how actually clever he is, and I would never normally say that about H, but going into management, you know, you you can't, you're not just given an opportunity, 
you've got to you've got to study hard. You've got to wait for that opportunity to come. And he's you know he had a great crack when he was coaching, which I was delighted with. He had a, he was very very let down by Notts County, and he's waited again to have another opportunity now. And he you know and most people would go, I've had enough, and that's not for me. He's focused. Well, I will give Harry credit. He is a when he's got something on his mind, he'll go out and get it, and that's what I love about him because he's he's a go getter. He's not a Another thing, but back in the day with his with his his agent, he was very very protected, and I think um, he he probably regrets that back in the day having having that guy looking after him. That's a fair comment, and it, and it probably distracted people's attention to what was going on in the pitch, and that's what this podcast exists for. We're all about the football, not none of the controversies. But nonetheless, I mean, maybe I've introduced that subject badly. I think I know, but your fifth goal for Leeds involves a celebration where there's a little bit of eating going on and a, tack, a tapping of the tummy. It's against Middlesbrough. Now, there's a specific reason for that, I think, um, given that you were already, it was only your fifth goal, but you were already apparently playing for your future at the club. <laughs> You've done your homework, lad. It was, um, you know, you know what it is, the, the <laughs> The worst thing you can give a Premier League footballer who lives by himself and he's a single lad and he can't cook is a McDonald's gold card. Now, what the McDonald's gold card was allowed you to do was McDonald's was sponsoring the Premier League. I came into the dressing room one day. There was all these envelopes and all the boys' spots and we're going, oh, what's this? We've got a, we've got a letter to an invite to a, a, somebody's barbecue, somebody's party, somebody's getting married, you know. And we've opened it up and there was this gleaming gold McDonald's card and and I was thinking, what the hell is this? And the boys are going, Christ, read it, read it. it free food. We've got free food from McDonald's. Now, bearing in mind, the lads, we're, we're on good money. We don't need free McDonald's. Do you know what I mean? And two are professional footballers. We don't need it for the waistline. But for a lad that's living by himself, mate, this was absolute gold dust for me. So I'll never forget, Lee Boyer lived at the other end of the cul-de-sac as well. And Harry had his his partner looking after him, Cherie. She would cook good meals for him. And me and Lee, you know, we didn't have anything like that. So we would drive to McDonald's. Lee Lee never put any weight on. We would drive to McDonald's. We'd get the menu with chips, show the gold card, and we'd just drive back and we'd, we'd just pig out on McDonald's. So this went on for a few weeks, and I, I got the calipers every Monday morning, and the, the body fat started going up. Now, when you've got skinny legs like me and your, your midriff gets bigger, there's something going on. So the Steve McGregor, one of the, I can't remember who the fitness coach was at the time. He just said, listen, you, you'd be having too many Maccas. I'm taking your gold card off you. So I, it was like when Chris Waddle left Newcastle, I cried my eyes out, man, when I lost me McDonald's gold card. I was devastated. So I get this call off Lee, Lee boy this day. He said, Bridgie, do you want to go for Maccas? I said, I can't, mate. I can't. If I'm seeing at Maccas, I'm going to get done. He said, I've... I've got my gold card, you know, it won't cost you. I'm like, it's not, that's not the point, mate. You don't get it. I'll probably get sacked. So anyway, he talked us round. He said, go on, I'll get you an extra plate of fries. So I thought, go on then. So we've gone there and he's, and he's Porsche with registration Boyer. So it's quite discreet. You know, nobody's going to see us. So lo and behold, O'Leary's driving the other way with a fitness coach and the catcher's going along Hare Hills Road into the McDonald's drive through So I'm just about to tuck into a, burger and there's a toot of the horn and sure enough it's O'Leary and the fitness coach looking through the car window and I'm just going and I threw the burger in the back of Lee's car and I was like trying to scratch my head and they're like right I'll never forget he, he said if you don't score this weekend he said you're getting fined and you're not playing for three or four weeks till you lose the weight so Middlesbrough 
gets the ball, scuffs a shot, it bobbles over Mark Swarter, send him the wrong way, and I just ran off and I thought, I've got to do the celebration. So I've gone and had the burger bite, and I've t- I've tucked and tapped the old the old tummy and give it. And the fans never knew what the hell it was for. Everybody wanted to know, and I just didn't want to tell them what was going on. And lo and behold, I came in on the Monday morning, and guess what was back shining in my spot? The Macca's goal card. I was back. <laughs> It wasn't a scuff, it was beautiful, far corner, right across him, he's about 6 foot 17 when he's fully stretched and it still found that corner, that was another thing that made us want to invite you on here because some of the the finishes you conjured up were so, they were so clever, there was a couple of times in that, that beautiful season, I'm sure many times afterwards too, where you finished high, you got in close and you were so clever about lifting it. There was about three in the middle of that 21-goal season where... Because we, we've just finished, and I know that people need to know that... I think it's um, Optus you're working for, is it? The, the Optus Sports. Channel, yeah, they're the, yeah, they're the yeah. Premier League right holders in Australia. And Big Mark and Kelly Summers um, work with them um, in Europe. Fantastic people, both of them. And... Um, I know you'll have been working hard on the Champions League recently and watching them. There's been a couple of finishes, not exclusively in the final, where Manuel Neuer's extended leg, the way that he gets it down there, and you're screaming at people, lift it, lift it, lift it. And Michael Bridges, you were a, you were a, a maestro at that, that. That If I go high, if I lift it up here, the defender or the keeper isn't going to get it. You were really good at that. No, I appreciate that. I used to, I mean, there was one against Bradford, I'll never forget, right? And it, I used to love scoring the ones from distance because I, I would try... I would try the unorthodox or the the novelty thing, but it was instinct. You know, I, if I saw the keeper off his line, I would try and lob them and chip them. But the, like you say, the, the one against Bradford, I'll never forget, there was two players slid in front of us and I just put it into the roof of the net. I remember one against Sheffield United for Sunderland. It, I, it sounds really cocky and arrogant, but I used to enjoy seeing players slide past you and just go like, you're sending them for, I call it sending them for a bacon and egg pie, you know, or a bacon and egg roll, sorry. And you, then you'd lift it over the top of them. So it was kind of a, it was a cocky, arrogant thing. But I think that comes back to when I used to play backstreet football and also go to the school field. And we used to play a game called uh, World Cup Willies. There was 10 of us or 12 of us or 20 of us. And if you had to score to get through to the next round. So you, one moment you're taking on 20 players. And, you know, it was uh, them, them, them days. I think it's why the Brazilians are so have so much flair because it's it's their culture, it's their lifestyle, it's beach, it's five-a-side courts all over the, the country. I love going to Rio and seeing the beaches just full of people playing football, whether it was male, female, you you name it, it was out there. It just becomes another limb. And I'm I'm very grateful for where I was brought up because we every day it was me and the boys playing street soccer um, or going to the local school field. And that was that was my life from three o'clock till nine o'clock at night. It's going back to your point about Chrissy Wardle too and Eddie Gray, the entertainers, and you, you are one of them. If you if you soak up that influence, you'll do it. And like you say, but it doesn't sound cocky or arrogant. If you can hold as somebody dives in and all you can hear is you score, as you're lipping up there, bastard, as they, as, they, as they fly past you, it's the best thing ever. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, 
at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.